And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. All right, if you get your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I haven't had a chance to listen to Tyler's handling of Romans 8.28. You tell me, did he do a good job? Did he handle it biblically? All right. I knew he would. I mean, I didn't lose any sleep over it. Let's put it that way. But we may step on each other's toes here because I haven't heard his and he hasn't heard mine. So you know how that goes. If you would, just stand, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Uh, I'm actually going to read 28 again because 28 goes with 29 and 30, which I'll explain in just a few minutes. So beginning in verse 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before You this morning with a powerful passage in front of us, and obviously we need Your Holy Spirit to speak truth into our hearts so that we can understand what You are saying to us. And so, Father, I pray that He would do that now. Uh, Father, we'd sense Your presence and that You would speak that truth so that in the end, as uh, verse 29 says, we can be conformed to the image of Your Son. And we ask it in His precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I suspect that you're all familiar with the story that's found in Exodus 3. Moses is out shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, and he sees something rather unusual. It's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being burnt up. Moses goes over to check it out. He says, let me see what's going on here. And from the midst of the bush, God speaks to Moses. He tells Moses to take his shoes off because the place where he is standing is holy ground. Well, I feel as a congregation, at least symbolically, we should take off our shoes because the truth of our passage, what is revealed is holy ground. Now, in one respect, it's like the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. God tells Abraham to a country that that God will show him, and, and then he lists six things that God will do for Abraham, including land, uh, many descendants, and making him, Abraham, a blessing for all the families of the earth. Well, in our passage this morning, there is one thing that we do. We love God. Paul says, for those who love God. And then it is a list of five things that God does for those who love Him. Now, at this point, there should be a couple of red flags going off in your mind. Uh, You might be thinking, well, it seems like you're saying that it's because we love God that He does these things for us. Surely love is not a work by which we merit these things. Well, of course not. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. The Apostle John tells us that the only reason that we love God is because He first loved us. Now in our passage, Paul is simply telling us who these things happen to, not why it happens to them. It happens to those who love God. All five things that happen to those who love God are purposed, and carried out by God Himself, which is why I say we are standing on holy ground. 
These things cause us to bow the knee and worship God alone. Now from verse 28 through the rest of the chapter, Paul is dealing with the assurance of salvation. Paul wants us to understand from the beginning that from the beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. So why is the assurance of salvation such a big deal to Paul at this point in his discourse? Well, do you remember what we covered? This would be three weeks ago now in verses 18 through 25. It all had to do with suffering. Because of sin in the world and in us, along with all creation, we will encounter suffering. So how do we deal with it? If you'll recall in that same passage, Paul talks about the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's that promise of future glory that will sustain us through our present suffering. So in verses 28 through 30, Paul gives us an even fuller picture of the assurance of our salvation, in part to help us endure our present suffering. Now, these five things that Paul presents are often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. They are five distinct links that God purposes and executes for certain people who are identified in the present as those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, these five links, they cover the entire expanse of time. The first two, foreknowledge and predestination, they occurred before time began, in eternity past, in the secret counsel of God. The next two links, calling and justification, they occur in our current space-time existence. They happen to us while we're alive. And the last link, glorification, that occurs in the future at the second coming of Christ, and it lasts forever. Verse 28 gives us the great news that God is working all things together for our good. That is, God has a great and good purpose for all Christians. And He is working in the many detailed circumstances of our lives to bring it about, to achieve it. Now, as good as that verse is, the next two are even better. They tell us how God accomplishes His good purposes in our lives and reminds us that it is God Himself who accomplishes them. Paul's main point is verse 28. God will work together all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's the main point. Verses 29 and 30 are subordinate clauses that demonstrate how God can and will cause all things to work together for our good. So what I want to do is spend the next 15 or 20 minutes covering the first two of the five links in this golden chain of salvation, foreknowledge and predestination. Next, Lord willing, will come uh, next week. Uh, so number one, foreknowledge. That comes from the Greek. It's two words, pro, meaning before, and gnosko, which is a simple word in Greek meaning to know. You put them together, it means to know before, to know beforehand. Now, just how foreknowledge and predestination function together is often misunderstood. And the prescient view of predestination falls into this misunderstanding. The prescient view, that's again, that simply means pre-knowledge. The prescient view says that in his foreknowledge, God looks down the corridor of time. And he sees all who will have faith in him. And based on their faith... 
predestines them. Now, I hope you see the, fall the fallacy here. Now God is choosing, electing, predestining believers based on something that they're going to do in the future. Well, Paul's already made it clear in chapter 3 that there is none who are righteous. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks God. So foreknowledge does not refer to foreseen faith that then becomes the basis of predestination. That's probably the most prevalent view out there, but it's not biblical. I, I want to look at foreknowledge in a little bit more biblical approach. This word foreknowledge is used five times in the New Testament. Now, a solid means of interpretation is known as the analogy of Scripture. It's simply where you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If you want a better understanding of the meaning of a particular word, see how it's used in other places in the Bible. So, let's take a look at the five places that this word foreknowledge is used. The first is Acts 26.5. Paul is speaking, and here's what he says, "...they have known..." For a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, Paul states that they already knew that Paul lived the strict life of a Pharisee. The second is Second uh, Peter 3.17. Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that's the word, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now verse 16 tells us that these people knew that godless people had distorted some of Paul's writings and they were not to do the same. So both of these uh, verses that I just read refer to specific things that they knew in advance about both Paul and his writings. I want you to see if you notice anything different about the next three usages. The first is 1 Peter 1.20. And it says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was mani made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Next is Romans 11.2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And lastly is our verse this morning, Romans 8.29. Paul says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you notice the difference here? In each of these cases, it's not something about those individuals that is known in advance. It's the individuals themselves. He, Jesus, was foreknown. His people whom He foreknew, those whom He foreknew. The people themselves are foreknown, not merely what they have done or what they will do. Now here's how Spiros Zodiades, a noted Greek scholar, defines foreknowledge in these verses. To foreknow with approbation, to approve beforehand, to make a previous choice of a peculiar people, or to foreordain. Here's some verses just scattered throughout the Bible that maybe will help you see this better. In Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. That's some type of knowledge, isn't it? 
God told Jeremiah that He knew him before He formed him in the womb. In Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the nations on the earth. Many will say to Jesus in that last day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And what's Jesus' response? I never knew you. Depart from me. In Galatians 4.9, Paul says to the church, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. To know or to foreknow is more than to have a bare knowledge of. It's to have the approval the approbation or commendation of. It points to a determining on God's part to fellowship with believers with whom He beforehand entered into fellowship. It's those that God predestines. Only those whom He foreknew foreknew does He predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. Foreknowledge means that salvation has its origin in the mind or the eternal counsels of God, not in man. It focuses our attention on the distinguishing love of God, according to which some people are elected to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. So that's foreknowledge. Well, number two is predestination. You want to get in a fight early, you know, quick, just start talking about predestination in your, in your little public group. The second of our five golden links is predestination. And this is the one that bothers people the most, although what bothers them is actually included in the word foreknowledge. That is, that God should set His love upon a special people and save them while overlooking others. Predestination means that God has determined the specific destiny of those He has previously decided should be saved and be made like Jesus. Now, there are arguments against predestination. So we're going to look at the the top three, if you will. Um, And it really includes what we were talking about as well in uh, foreknowledge. So objection number one, if you believe in predestination you make salvation arbitrary and God a tyrant. There's actually two objections here. Let's begin with the second one. Does predestination make God a tyrant, crushing justice by some willy-nilly saving of some and damning of others? Now, we can understand how people who don't know much about the Bible, they might think this, particularly since they think that God is unjust anyway, that He is unfair. But anyone who studied the Bible, or even the book of Romans, knows how wrong this is. What happens if we seek only an even-handed justice from God? The answer is it will be lost, eternally lost. Justice is what the last half of Romans Romans 1 is all about. We covered this months ago. The justice of God condemns us and can only condemn us because we stand guilty before God. If we seek justice from God, we will find it by being cast into outer darkness forever. You don't want anything to do, folks, with the justice of God. 
In order to be saved, we need mercy, not justice. And that's what predestination is all about. It's God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy. Paul says in, in Romans 9.18, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Now as far as salvation being arbitrary, we must admit that from our limited perspective, we can't see why God chooses some and not others, or even why He chooses some and not all. And therefore, His foreknowledge, His predestination, they do seem a little arbitrary. But that's only because we're not God and we do not see as God sees. We can't understand the full scope of His purposes in saving some and not others. But that does not mean that God is without such purposes. In fact, everything we know about God leads us to conclude that He has purposes even though we don't know what they are. What we know about God shows that He is infinitely purposeful in His actions. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writing, He puts predestination in this framework. Here's what he says, In Him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Now that sounds like the opposite of being arbitrary to me. Similarly, in Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says his intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God has a purpose. Well, objection number two. If you believe in predestination, then you must deny human freedom. This is a common objection, uh, but it's based on a sad misunderstanding of the freedom that we are supposed to have as fallen human beings. What does the Bible teach about our freedom in spiritual matters? I just mentioned three there from, from Romans chapter 3. There's none who is righteous. There's none who seeks God. There is none who does good. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to, to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Predestination doesn't take away freedom. It actually restores it. It's because God foreknows me and predestines me to be conformed to the image of His Son that I am actually delivered from sin's bondage and now set free to serve God. You can also look at this practically in answer to a related question. Does predestination destroy freedom in experience? Sinclair, Sinclair uh, Ferguson, he answers, we have a practical illustration in the life of the man who of all man, men was most clearly predestined by God, namely Jesus. Jesus was the freest and most responsible man who ever lived. Has there ever been a life in which the sense of God's predestining purpose has been more clearly seen than in our Savior? Is He not spoken of as the elect? chosen and predestined one. Were not His ways determined for Him in the pages of the Old Testament? Yet, was there ever a freer man in all the universe? 
Ferguson summarizes, he says, we may be told that the doctrines of predestination turns God into a tyrant and, a man, and man into a slave, but we discover to the contrary that it shows God to be a God of great grace and the children of God to be the freest of men and women, end quote. Objection number three, if you believe in predestination, you destroy the motivation for evangelism. In other words, why should we labor to save those whom God has determined to save anyway? Why evangelize if they're going to be saved? The theological answer to that is not difficult. Uh, God determines the means to His ends as well as the ends themselves. So, if He is determined to bring the gospel to Mary Jones by a faithful witness to her by Sally Smith then it is just as important and necessary that Sally Smith be a witness to Mary Jones as it is that Mary Jones actually become a Christian. Now, I could answer the objection in another way. Suppose God does not elect to salvation. And because He is not determined to save some, He does not commit Himself to create new life within them that will break down their hard hearts. He does not enable them to respond to faith, in faith, to the message of the cross when it is made known. Here's my question. If God doesn't commit Himself to doing that, what hope do you and I as evangelists have of doing it? If the hearts of men and women are as wicked and incapable of belief as the Bible teaches, how can you and I ever hope to present the gospel savingly to anyone? To put it in even more frightening terms, if salvation depends on our efforts to evangelize rather than the foreknowledge and predestination of God, what if I do something wrong? What if I give a wrong answer to a question or do something that turns others away from Christ? In that case, either by my error or because of my sin, I will be responsible for the eternal damnation. I don't see how that can encourage anyone to evangelism. On the contrary, it will make us afraid to do or say anything if it really depends on us. But look at it from the other side. If God has elected some to salvation in order that Jesus might be glorified and that many might come to faith in Him and be conformed to the image of Jesus, then I can be both relaxed and bold in my witness. I can know that God will save those He is determined to save and even use my witness, however feeble, however imprecise it might be, if this is the means that He has chosen. Far from destroying evangelism, predestination actually makes evangelism possible. It makes it an, an expectant and joyful exercise. I want to close by reiterating that these two great terms, foreknowledge and predestination, they refer to things that God does. The apostle is dealing with our eternal security and he is emphasizing God's work so that we might understand from the beginning that this wonderful plan of salvation cannot fail. If it would, I mean it would, excuse me, if it depended on us. Everything we do fails sooner or later. Our faith would fail. Our ability to persevere would be extinguished. Our hold on God would weaken. 
and we would let go and in the end fall into hell. Salvation is not like that. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. Uh, it challenges us in, in ways that make us uncomfortable, and that's, that's Your doing. That's good. Father, for us, uh, Lord, as we learn <laughs> to trust You, uh, even when we don't understand it, when it's beyond our understanding, Father, You are an infinite God who has all wisdom and knowledge, and we are just mere creatures who can't even see around the corner. So, Father, I pray that You would just give us hearts that would be willing to trust Your Scripture. That's what we're trying to do here this morning, Father. So just show us that truth. Reveal it to us. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, this morning it may be that you have never come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is about. We're all separated from God because of things we've done. I've already quoted to you twice there, or semi-quoted from Romans, there is none righteous, there is none who seeks God, there is none who does good. We are all separated from God. And it's because of our sin. It's because of our sin nature. It's all that we can do. There's nothing that we can bring to God and say, how about this? Will, will, will this help? Will this contribute? No, it won't. Salvation is nothing other than coming to that point where you realize, yes, I have nothing in myself to recommend me to God. The only thing I have is God's mercy. The only thing I have is what Jesus did on the cross. Okay, again, that publican, there in the temple, he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said He went home justified right with God. If you need God today, it's through His Son, Jesus Christ, but you need God's mercy. Cry out to Him today and trust what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's the way of salvation. If you're a Christian, uh, you know, if you, if you understand these doctrines and have dealt with them, then, you know, I'm not going to shake you either way. And that's cool. I'm not, I'm not really trying to shake you. I'm trying to give you some assurance. That's why Paul put this in here. From 28 on is about the assurance of our salvation so that we don't have to doubt. Because if it did depend on us, we, we would let go. We would fall short. Now, here's something that the Baptists, um, historically have agreed to Okay, we call it perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints or eternal security. That's all, a lot of that comes from the verses that we looked at today. It's one group. Those He foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. When's glorification? It's in our future sometime when Jesus comes again. But how does Paul treat it? It's past tense because it is a sure thing. It's as good as done. Our salvation is because of what God has done on our behalf. I asked this a few weeks ago, how many of y'all have ever doubted your salvation? Here goes my hand. Yeah, you don't have, If you doubt your salvation, that's because you are looking at yourself. And if you look at yourself, you're eventually going to get to despair. Because the only thing we can measure up to is Christ, and none of us are even close. 
We have to depend on what God has done through His Son Jesus. That's the only thing that makes us That's the only thing that makes us be able to stand before God and say, You're my God. I love you. I trust you. I follow you. No other. I hope you're doing that in your life. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.